welcome to episode 213 of The Recovery Show. This episode is brought to you by James. James used the donation button on our website. Thank you, James, for your generous contribution. This episode is for you. We are friends and family members of alcoholics and addicts who have found a path to serenity and happiness. We who live or have lived with the seemingly hopeless problem of addiction understand as perhaps few others can. So much depends on our own attitudes and we believe that changed attitudes can aid recovery. Before we begin, we would like to state that though we at The Recovery Show may be in a 12-step program, we represent ourselves rather than the program. The opinions expressed here are strictly those of the person who gave them. Take what you like and leave the rest. My name is Spencer and I'm your host today. And today I'd like to share with you an open talk by Cynthia C. I really connected with a lot of uh, what Cynthia had to say. I encourage you to stick around for the telephone story because I think you'll laugh. So here's Cynthia. Hi, I'm Cynthia, and a very grateful member of Al-Anon. And I was real privileged to ask to come here. Can everyone hear this? I can't tell if it echoes back or not. Okay. When Mary called and asked me to speak a couple, really, I guess it's been a couple months ago, and I thought, well, I hadn't I hadn't shared my story in a while, and at first I kind of said, no, I'd think about it. And then after I talked to Mary longer, I decided that this is something that I should do because it's really good for me. It reminds me of what's happened um, in my life. Um, I guess the biggest thing in my life right now is my serenity. And in order for you to understand the serenity that I have, I have to tell you about the serenity that I didn't have. And uh, it starts back by a lot of people have mentioned at the meeting since I've been here. It starts back by growing up with a real dysfunctional family. I didn't have alcoholism in my family, but I had mental illness. I had two mentally ill uh, parents. And at the time, I didn't understand it. I, you don't understand. Whatever the dysfunction is, you don't understand it when you're a child and when you're growing up. And But the biggest thing that I noticed is that when I was six years old, my mother and I traded places. I was the mother and she was a child, and it stayed that way, and it's currently that way. I'd like to turn it around. I'm working on it, but I haven't quite succeeded yet. It's something I work at a lot. And uh, I grew up under the Henny Penny... Henny Penny syndrome, and I don't know if you know that it's Henny Penny, the sky is going to fall down, and I was told constantly that the sky was going to fall down, and I believed it, and I waited for it, and I waited for the food not to be there on Friday, because Henny Penny, the sky was going to fall in, so it was a constant turmoil, it was a constant turmoil that things weren't going to work out, and therefore I became a real dysfunctional child, I, 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 I switched the roles, and I was the the functional person in the family, but at six years old, you can't do that real well, and you can't you can't do it all through your childhood. So that's really how it started out. It started out by me just being, knowing something that was really wrong, but I didn't know what it was, and I was really, really frightened. And I used to lay in my bed at night thinking, I am going to get out of this house. I am going to become somebody. And I would just, it was just like a drive, and I thought about it, and I thought about it. In fact, I was going to be Brenda Starr, the newspaper reporter. I was, I just, I read the article each day. I was going to wear the big hats and I was going to get out. And I knew if I got out, I was going to be okay because it was, it was just something that was there. And once I left, left this house, whatever, then I would be okay. So I, I got out. I was 18 and, and I just the day before I was getting out, I had a real serious car accident. In fact, I was going to come up to school up to CSU. I was 18 and it was the next day with school. 
And instead of coming to school, I spent six months in Children's Hospital in Denver. And um, it's real interesting because I feel that I think that my higher power was working in my life clear back then because I, I kept a daily log of, of my time in that hospital. And the thing that I I noticed, I, I, I read it after I had been in Al-Anon, and I look back and I realized that at 18, I knew more than I than I, I knew until I got into Al-Anon. I really had some things figured out. When you spend a lot of time on your back like that, you and you put a lot of things into perspective. So I I knew what I wanted. I'd figured it out at 18, but I didn't know how to do it. I had no idea. I had no tools. I had nothing. So therefore, I just went on, and I was a dysfunctional person. I got out of the hospital. I went to school, and uh, I was just determined that I would never get into another dysfunctional to be dysfunctional again. I was really on a quest to be together. That was my quest. It was the Vietnam era. I was a hippie. I was serious. I had the, the I had long brown hair and I had big brown eyes and they were serious all the time. And who did I meet? I met my husband. And he looked like a guy from Three Dog Night and he had big brown eyes and he was serious. And so we were darling. I mean, we just, we were going to save all you guys, the other generation. We, we were doing it together. He was, he read literature. I studied classical guitar. We, we did, we had it, you know. Uh, my God, we were at Woodstock. You know, it, it was just, this was it, you know, and I had found my purpose. This was it. I had found my purpose. And, um, we were at the peace rallies, and and uh, and I this this, just, this was it, you know. I I had finally come around, and I figured it out. But then things didn't work out. Uh, everyone was just stoned all the time, you know. And I thought we were going to do things, and I couldn't figure out, you know. We we weren't doing anything. So we're getting together, and and we were talking what we thought intellectual, and then everyone passes out, and the next morning everyone goes home, and no one can remember what we talked about. And I didn't, you know, I. The years were going on, and I didn't, I didn't really understand what had happened. And but I, I knew again that something. I thought I was going to be doing all these things, and and nothing was happening, you know. And uh, our relationship was really just, it was just kind of there. And then it was, um, I didn't know what was wrong. I didn't know what was wrong. We had lived together, and I thought that was what you did first. You decided if. You live together with them, then you would make a mistake, like my parents did. They were divorced when I was 10, and, and they had grown up in this real fundamental and very religious, and it didn't work for them. So I figured, well, that didn't work, so I'd go clear the opposite. And I would live with someone first, and then I'd make sure I was right. So I did that. And that didn't work, you know, and, and I found out I was married, and I, and I woke up one morning, and I said, oh, you know, this isn't working, just, you know, I'm not happy, and, and, and and nobody said, but I didn't know what was wrong. I didn't know what was wrong. It was dysfunctional again, and I didn't know. I couldn't believe that I had got myself in that situation. I was waking up in the mornings, and I was saying, uh-oh, I, I've done it again. I'm just like I was when I was 10 years old. I'm waking up, and I'm saying, I've got to get out of here. You know, this this isn't what I planned. This isn't, you know, this didn't, didn't fit in with my ideals, and, and somehow it wasn't, it just didn't work right. It didn't feel right. But I didn't know what was wrong, and um, my own personal family, my immediate family, my own family, my my mother, 
proceeded to get worse, and she proceeded to be a diagnosed, uh, diagnosed as schizophrenic. And then we, she was in and out of institutions. And uh, then I became obsessed with her and my little brother. And he was starting at this time to get into his own drugs and, and alcohol in junior high. And I, but I, I didn't know what was wrong. I didn't know, I didn't know that was what was wrong with me. I knew there was something wrong, but I, I didn't realize it was that. So I just kept getting worse. And I didn't know what was wrong with me, but I knew something was desperately, desperately wrong with me. And finally, it was one Thanksgiving dinner where I, I realized that I was more crazy than the rest of them. And I was one of these people too that I, I kind of thought I, I was like, I wanted a Walton, I wanted to be in the Walton family. And, and I was real disappointed that I wasn't born in the Walton family. So I decided that I'd, I'd make my own Walton family and I was going to have John Boy and everybody there. And I, m- my dinners that I had, I had, we had an old house in Denver we'd refurbished and it looked like a little house on the prairie. It was just darling. It was built at the turn of the century. And I, I had done it all. The wood floors were ref- Finished, I had macrame curtains for the windows, and it had two cats that looked out the window all the time. And, and it was really, it was perfect. And, and I was uh, a perfect earth mother, so I thought. And so uh, it was Thanksgiving dinner, and uh, my husband was drinking, and he brought the TV clear across the room and brought it to the table. And that, that didn't fit in. The Waltons didn't do that. I didn't like that. And my little brother came over in his hot rod car, squealing around the block about seven times before he came in. So we would, the whole neighborhood would know that he, this person had arrived and be real thrilled. My older brother came down from Fort Collins and he was a real intellectual genius type and he would come in and do magic tricks for my little boy at that time. And my mother was out of the institution, one of the institutions at this time and, and she was really drugged on Melaril and this is a very, potent antipsychotic and so she just kind of sat around glassy-eyed and shuffled her feet and I had this seven course meal and, and uh, everything was just wonderful and so we went to sit down at the table and then the television comes shuffled over to the table and everyone was sitting there and I I did something I'd never done before I stepped back and looked at my family and I stepped back and I, I looked at myself and I watched everyone individually and how they looked and, and what kind of this, you know, this strange family I had. And then I just had this irresistible urge to pick up the carving knife and stab the hell out of the turkey while everyone was looking because it was sitting in the front there in the middle of the table, just perfect. I took it out of the oven and it was brown. It was beautiful. And I didn't physically do it, but in my mind's eye, I stood back and I thought, if I, if I just murder that turkey in front of them, they're going to know that something's wrong with me. They're going to finally know that they've just driven me crazy, you know. So I thought, my God, you know, they're, I'm worse than they are. That was the first really awakening that I found out that I had something wrong with me. I still didn't know it was because of dysfunctional family, because of alcoholism. I didn't know I was a codependent. I, I didn't know anything, you know. I, I, I knew my husband got up every morning and smoked a joint and went to work as a photographer for the Denver Post and got high in the dark room. I didn't think that was real normal, but everyone thought it was kind of neat that he could do that. <laughs> so I thought, well, that you know, that's just our lifestyle and what we we do. But then he came home and he, he got home early and watched Star Trek and drank beer. And I thought, what happened to the literature? You know, we have bookcases and bookcases of all this literature. You know, and I, I thought that's what he did. I didn't think he watched Star Trek. That wasn't part of the bargain. 
And then I thought, well, he drank a six-pack. What? How come he goes back to the store at 11 o'clock at night and gets just two cans of beers more? You know, that all that didn't make sense to me, and I started to worry about it. So this was, I don't know, probably about 1976, and I tried a couple Al-Anon meetings in Denver, and it's all I wanted to know as if David was an alcoholic because he went back to the store for two more beers. And no one would tell me, you know. No one would tell me, and that's all I wanted to know. I wanted to know if he was an alcoholic. I'd heard about alcoholism, and but that's all. I, I just figured, well, maybe if he's an alcoholic, then maybe that's what's wrong with us. Well, that you didn't tell me, so that didn't work. So I got crazier and crazier and crazier. And I got to where in the wintertime I would go out to a detached garage in the back of the house and scream. And one time I came back in from the house and I saw my face in the mirror and it was real demented. And um, those are just moments, you know, that we see the sickness that that we have and the disease that this brings about. Because like uh, Bob was talking about last night, I had completely lost that that child that was in me. And I was just, I was just so wrapped up in my own insanity. And I was very afraid of the mental illness I had in my family. I was waiting for it to hit me, and I was sure this was it. This was it. This is a sign. So every time there was something, I worried about it more. And it was just—it was in constant turmoil. And on top of this, I have a little boy, and he's two years old, one year old, when all this is really in its in its in its prime. And I'm abusing him uh, verbally, once in a while physically, and I don't know why. You know, I just don't know why. And um, things just keep getting worse. And finally, I start living in my head, which a lot of us Al-Anons do. We start living in our heads. And so I decided to have a perfect escape. Because we had talked separation many times, been separated many times. In fact, we were in div- thinking of a divorce when I found out that I was pregnant with my son. And, of course, people get back together. Um, when things like that happen... And so I started living in my head, and I started plotting the perfect escape. And I had some money set aside that my father had given me, and I had it hidden. And I was going to escape with my son back east. I don't know why I thought back east, because I figured he'd never find me. And Because he said if I ever took his son from him, he'd kill me, and I believed it. And uh, that was my insanity, too. You could you could control me by that. So I was I was going to leave. I was going to go back east. I was going to take my boy, I was going to change my ID, and I knew I could never drive or have another social security card because he was going to find me and he was going to kill me. So I lived this way for 18 months, and every morning I plotted my escape. This just shows you that the insanity doesn't, just not the alcoholic has the insanity, the codependent has it too. I was going to get away, and the only way I knew to get away was to get away for good to where he could never find me again. So I plotted this escape, and it was just... It was like if there was a perfect crime, I had the perfect escape. I figured that no one would ever find me. Well, I never went through with it. Ended up using the money and built a redwood deck on the back of the house. <laughs> so that period left, and we just went, we just kept going on, and the disease kept progressing. Our friends, everyone, it was the drug culture, and, and it, everybody did it. Finally, a real good friend of ours, a mother of three children, died of a PCP someone put in a joint. And once again, that didn't fit in with my plan. Um, I said, "This, you know, this wasn't supposed to happen. You know, that that we were supposed to have all this awareness by the lifestyle that we were living." And 
when we lost her, it was another really big um, thing to me. I thought, I don't want to live this way anymore. You know, I don't want the drugs, and I don't want the alcohol. And I, But I, I didn't know what to do because I didn't have the courage, and I didn't know if I was supposed to get out of my marriage because I had seen my parents' marriage fail, and I was really determined that this one was going to work. So we decided to move to California, which I realize now was our first geographical. And David had been working for the Denver Post for 16 years. He hated his job. He talked about it daily. And I said, for God's sake, don't keep that job for me. Don't keep the security for me. And at that point, I was willing to give up my house, my security. And I didn't know what was ahead in California. All I knew is that it was different than what we had. And I had to have something different. I I didn't care if I went out there and died. I just didn't care. And so we sold our house. We packed up the U-Haul, hooked the VW bus behind it with the German Shepherd, two cats, fish, everything. I followed behind in our second car, and we trailed off to California. Yep, going to have a new life out there and going to either get together or die. That was, that, was, that was my feeling. I'm not sure what David's feelings at that time was, but it was either we were going to get it together or we were going to die. And I didn't care which. I, I didn't, as all I knew it was going to be, anything had to be better than what I had. And we got out there, no jobs, we found a house to rent. And, and, uh, another thing too is I thought, well, if David got away from his friends, this would help too. Because it was such a drug culture at the time and drinking and the guys at work drank and his own personal friends drugged. So it was just, you know, it was there. Um, we got there real nervous, you know, about not having jobs and everything because this was 1980 and it wasn't a real good year to do something like this. It's never a real good year to do something like this. But we did it. And we got there and David came back the very first day we were there. And he came back and he says, I have a job. And I thought, oh, God, this is, this is really great. This is, this is what it's supposed to be. We're going we're gonna to make it out here. And I said, where's your job? And he goes, it's down there at the Vista, Vista Liquor Store. And, you know, and I, and I thought... God, he's gone from making $30,000 a year to $4.25 an hour, you know. I thought, that's not going to work. You know, we aren't, you know, we aren't going to make it on $4.25 an hour. I thought, well, but it's a job. It's a job. It's a start. Not only was it a liquor store, but it also was the drug traffic for Vista, California. And in Fallbrook, they grew the best grass in all of Southern California. So, I mean, he didn't have to be around his friends. I mean, where we went, they just adopted him and, and he had everything there again. I went to work for a psychiatrist, and I had the keys to the drug cabinet. And, of course, he had migraines, and he needed tranquilizers a lot, and I brought him home. So it was that codependency again. I was there to serve service his needs. And then things started going really bad out there. I thought they were bad in Colorado. Well, in California, they started really going bad. And we hadn't been out there but about eight, nine months and he said he was going back to Los Angeles, going up to Los Angeles for the weekend. That's where he was from to see some friends. And I knew they were going to go up there and do drugs. And there's just something I couldn't handle it anymore. You know, maybe I finally got to that point that I was hoping I'd get if I left Colorado to be able to say, if you go up there and do that, don't come back. And I meant it. And he went to our family doctor and our doctor put him into treatment. And I was just, I didn't even know what treatment was. You know, and I wasn't even really sure he was an alcoholic. By then, I, I had read a lot. You can read daily in the paper about alcoholism, so I was pretty sure. But he hadn't been diagnosed, so I, until he was quote-unquote diagnosed, I really didn't understand it. 
So he went into Scripps Hospital in La Jolla with my insurance, and he was in for 30 days. Well, I, all the AA people in here, when I first went into that Scripps place, I couldn't stand you guys. I mean, they were just hugging David and telling, girls were coming up to me and saying, oh, he's so handsome, you know, and what a sweet husband you have. You know, I thought, God, you know, where do you guys come from, you know? And I just, I, I couldn't stand it. I hated that place. And I had to go through family week. And the only thing I liked about family week is that they said that I could say anything to him for an hour and he couldn't talk back. And there were counselors in the room. <laughs> so I went home. And I did my homework that night. We'd been married 10 years. We'd been together for 13. And I went home and I did my homework. And boy, I stayed up all night long. And David had told everyone down there that we just had a nice marriage. It hadn't affected our marriage. And then I came in. And I started talking to him. And I talked for four hours and no one shut me up. And when I got done, there was this total silence in the room. And I, I couldn't believe what I had said. But I had been quiet for 15 years at this time. His family was in the room. I also had his family. I had, an, I had the audience. All the time I had covered up all these years, I let them have it. And a counselor there was didn't take a real smart person to know that I had some deep, deep problems. And she said, Cynthia, I note some anger. And I and I I just said I did I was turned to stone I didn't know you know and she said I think you need some therapy I said I don't care I'll do anything I mean at this point I don't care you tell me to jump off the cliff I'll go off the cliff so they gave her the name of a really wonderful woman who was by the way my mother's age which is somebody I didn't have an adult woman my mother's age I thought all adult women my mother's age were like my mother you know I mean I had friends and stuff but not that I really knew she was also an Al-Anon and I stayed with her for three years, and she walked me through a journey that was just incredible. It was the best three years growing. I, I started Al-Anon. Um, I saw her weekly, and she taught me that I could take care of myself, and that started my growth. It was her, uh, this little lady from West Virginia with the sweetest little southern accent you ever heard, and she was about that high. And so she taught me that I could take care of myself, and I started I started my journey. Um David stayed in 18, in, in AA for 18 months. And for some of those months, it was the only really happiness that we've ever had together. Um, I saw how two people together, when they work a program, that there can be a healing of a marriage. Because at this time, I had, I got to where I, I hated him. He was lower than the lowest snake that goes across the, the grass. I hated him. I resented him. I wished he were dead. I, I can't tell you the feelings that I had, that had turned. And here I was married to this man. So she started me on my journey. And part of my journey was to start looking at my relationship and whether or not I was going to stay with this relationship. And one of the things I did know that I had to tell David was that I didn't love him. And that was a really incredibly hard experience. And I had to do it, though. I got to where I wasn't sleeping at night. I, I knew I had to do it. I had to do it. It was just like an inner voice I had. And so I had to tell him that I didn't love him anymore. I had to be honest. You know, too many things had happened. We didn't part. It, it was just that was that was what started me to be able to look, to look at him as another human being. Until I told him I didn't love him anymore, I couldn't look at him as a child of God or as a child of anybody. He was just dirt. You know, I mean, it was just there was just so, too many years of, of resentments, too many years of anger. 
And so that started my my journey of of recovery as far as as, as I quit hating him, and that was a step that meant I could quit hating myself. And that was real painful. That was real painful for both of us because he never quit loving me through all this. It was me that had quit loving him. It was me that had quit loving life. Like Bob had talked last night, I I didn't love anything about life. You know, I hated everything. I was just miserable all the time. And I shared with someone here the other day or yesterday that my recovery started, I couldn't cry. I didn't cry for years. I just turned into a stone, a piece of stone. And my therapist couldn't understand. She couldn't seem to break through this. She knew I was working the Al-Anon program, and, and yet I, I, I didn't have any feelings. I didn't have any emotions, and except maybe anger. But I, I, there still were no emotions. I didn't have any balance. And so finally she tried an exercise with me, and she told me that she wanted me to close my eyes, and she wanted me to imagine walking along the beach. And she wanted me, she said, what's your favorite color? And I said, my favorite color is, is emerald green. She said, okay, I want you to imagine that the ocean is emerald green. And she just started picturing, describing this picture for me in my mind of what of what I was looking at. And I just started crying. And it was, what was interesting to me is that it wasn't anything sad or unhappy that, that broke me. It was something um, that was beautiful. And we put aside all that for so many years. We don't see the beauty anymore. We don't see anything. It's all we see is the negative. And it goes clear back from the henny-penny dysfunctional family. There just wasn't any beauty left. And I had it as a child. I can remember just loving the mountains. I can remember scenes in my head, but we lose it. We lose it, and we get very, very dysfunctional. And so the rest of our time in California was better than it was when we came. Um, I continued to work my Al-Anon program throughout the whole time I was there. And I had many, many wonderful friends. And, and, and I realized I started I under, started to understand the education. I started to understand the alcoholism as a disease. I didn't want to accept that at first. Um, that was real difficult for me. I understood it intellectually, but I didn't understand it in my heart, how, how something could make someone turn into this. And then I was real worried about David. His father died in Skid Row, an alcoholic, when, he, when his father was 47. And David was getting, at that time, close to 40. So... You know, there wasn't, the, the the genetics are so strong there that I knew, you know, that it's, and his sister was a recovering alcoholic, you know, and, and his denial system was just so strong. But for a while, I really thought we had it together. We were the, we were the Al-Anon couple that went to all the dinners, and I could go into an open AA meeting, and all the AA members knew me, and we were, we were, finally, I thought we were the couple that's going to make it. And they gave a percentage in this treatment of who was going to make it and who wasn't going to make it. And we were going to, we were going to make it. You know, I was back to my idealistic thing again, I think. I thought, well, now we've got something that's even better than the peace movement. You know, we've got AA and Al-Anon. And so now we're going to make it in this. So when he started drinking again, I, I was really bowled over. I thought you didn't, if you had a good AA program, you, you didn't go back to that. You know, you didn't go back and risk losing your family. You know, that, I, I just couldn't understand that. And that's where the step one is that, you know, the powerless, the powerlessness over alcohol and over the disease. Because I couldn't understand how he could, because he knew, I told him that if he starts doing this again, I can't live that lifestyle, because I knew I'd die. I can't live that lifestyle anymore. So I said, if you do this, you have to do it on your own, you're going to lose us. And so I couldn't understand when he started drinking again. I thought, you know, it still isn't working. I'm still not good enough. 
I still didn't know what, you know, what to do. It's a thing in Al-Anon we say that we weren't attractive enough or clever enough to have solved this problem for the one we loved. Well, I still couldn't do it. Even with three years of Al-Anon, I hadn't done it. But that was another step, as all that was was another step. At the time, I fell apart. My group took hold of me and gave me their love, and I crawled through that. And um, I was just real thankful that I had that. And it was good for David at that time, too, because he had said that he quit drinking for me, and now he had to quit drinking for himself. And I understood by then. Now, if he had told me that six months after treatment, I wouldn't have been able to accept that. But with three more years of Alan down the road, I could accept that. So he started drinking again, only he didn't want our son to see it. So he drank in the garage. And even before he told me he was drinking, I knew something was wrong because he was always going out to check on the cat. And the cat was off on this little part of our house that was a storage area. And I thought, he is taking an unbelievable concern for this cat. And I, even the, the denial system we all have, even though a lot of the signs I had that he was drinking again, I still denied it. Because, and then all of a sudden he would leave at night to go take the garbage down to the Safeway dumpster. That was odd. We had gar- garbage pickup. You know, so I called my sponsor, you know, and I said, I think David's drinking again. And of course I wanted her to say, no, he's not, Cynthia. You're just all upset. I said, he's, this is the third night in a row he's gone down to the dumpster, you know, and I, I can't understand why he's doing this. She goes, of course he is. So I had to work through all that. And then he thought at that time he would give AA another chance. I, I, I always call it, some people dabble in the stock market. Well, David dabbles in AA. And he does it a little bit sometimes and he doesn't do it most of the time. So he got it, this time he got a sponsor and they, a real good sponsor and they took off and they went on an Amtrak around the United States for a month, and they went to AA meetings. And I thought, well, this is going to do it. You know, this is really going to do it. You know, I mean, my God, you know, you go on an Amtrak and you go to meetings. Thank you. You go to meet. I mean, you know, this is this is it, meetings all over the United States. You know, so I wished them well, and they got on the train in Del Mar, and it was just, you know, wonderful. And, and so they went, they were gone for a month, and I got postcards from all over the United States. And he came back, and three months later, he was drinking again. And he, but he never brought it into the house because he knew I couldn't handle it, you know. And it's just a thing that we do, you know. And and uh, I've been able to accept his disease, you know, and the disease process. And I don't know how long he'll do this. I, I really don't know. And I don't know if we'll stay together forever. We've been together for 17 years. And, and I, I just don't know. But I do know that this disease is cunning and it's baffling. And that I'll never have control of it. And he'll never have control of it. And there's really nothing anybody can do about that. You know, that I have, Al-Anon has been able for me to turn him completely over. If he dies, he, he says, he goes, you know, I want you to know that some morning you may wake up and I'm going to be gone. You know, and I fully expect that someday. And he'll probably end up on skid row like his father, and he probably won't last a real long time. But that isn't my responsibility. That's what Al-Anon has given me. That is not my responsibility. And what's my responsibility is my insanity and all the things that I've gone through and what I have to do for myself. And um, it's a daily process for me, and turning, turning him over is a daily process for me. And and I'm sad. I'm sad. The, the disease of alcoholism is real sad to me. 
You know, it's, it's real sad that we don't have a happy family. And it's real sad that I don't have a close relationship with him because the, the drinking's in the way. The, the, the beer bottle is, is, um, like an affair for him. You know, that's the woman that's in the middle. And when he drinks, that's the way it always is. You know, I, I have no, no chance with her. Absolutely no chance in a million with her. And I know that, you know, and, and it's, it's, it's just a process that I have been able to accept. And whether or not I choose to do this for the next, you know, 20 or 30 years, I don't know. At one time, I had really made up my mind that it was better for me and my son to get out of, you know, this relationship, for me to get my son out of the relationship. So I started edging towards that, and then I decided to pray on it. And I decided that I was that was my will, and I decided to pray for what I always try to do is for God God's will and not mine, and for me to have the power to carry that out. So I do that daily, and daily I'm you know I'm still with him, but it's only on a daily basis, and it's only as long as I feel that my higher power wants me there, because I don't have any control over it. I don't have any control over the disease. I don't have any control over his drinking, and um, it's the same thing with, with with my family. Even though there's not the drinking, there's there's the mental illness. And I have the little brother now. My little brother, he's thirty and he's six foot four, and he is just in the real folds of his disease. And he's been abusing my mother. He's never left home. He was raised by a mentally ill mother. We've tried many many things. I've been insane over him many many times. At one point, when she was in the hospital, and he was in the hospital from a car accident he got from whatever he was doing, I decided that I was going to go over and burn the house down, because if I burnt the house down, then that meant that they couldn't live there, and then they couldn't live in their diseases because it was so sick. And that just shows you how we get to where we think we can do all these things. And I've been trying to manage all these people's diseases for all this time, and I've never managed one. Is all I've done is if I've got myself really screwed up whenever I've done it. So the big thing, I've been back in Colorado for a year, and, it's, and sometimes I, I wake up and I go, oh, my God, what am I doing back here? I can't believe I did it, you know, because I'm back with the immediate family now. And I really, it forces me to use my Al-Anon program daily. And I'm, I'm able not to control what's going on over there with the mother and the brother. She, she knows, my mother knows about Al-Anon. She knows that she can kick him out. She knows she can call 911 and they can get him out of the house. I go over there and she shows me the bruises. There's nothing I can do. There's absolutely nothing I can do. And um, before Alan and I had gone over there and probably beat the hell out of my brother and he'd beat the hell out of me. But it, there, there is nothing I can do. There's nothing I can do really for any of them. The only thing I can do is for myself. And I've really changed. I, I really enjoy myself and I really enjoy everything that happens to me. And I, during the real strong alcoholic years and before I was in Al-Anon, I really became very isolatory, and I think a lot of us do. And I didn't see my friends anymore, and I didn't go anywhere, and I didn't do anything. And now I do just about everything. I went on a business trip just about a month ago, and it was to Boston, and I'd never been to Boston. And I was totally by myself. And I had a gorgeous hotel room right on the Charles River, I was really on the Cambridge side, and I just made my schedule. I knew which meetings I had to be in and which seminars I had to be in, and in between I put on my running shoes and I went to Harvard and I ran all over that town. I wouldn't have done that. I wouldn't have even been able to handle that, you know, and I just had a ball, and I saw everything, you know. I 
I, I just was there and everything that I could do, I did. And so many beautiful things have happened to me when I don't do it my way and when I turn it over. And that's what I try to do on a daily basis. I hadn't made contact with my father. He left when I was 10. Saw him when I had the automobile accident and then I made contact with him again when I was 26. And he is in a recovery program, which is called recovery and it's for people that have had mental illnesses. And he's doing real well. My father is a real inspiration to me in my adult life. And it was real nice to have, to be able to have a father and be able to be a child again because I, I was never a child. And what's real interesting with my dad is that he really wants to be, he missed being a father and he really wants to be a father to me. And I've been able to accept that. And two years ago he called and he said, uh, and I had trouble accepting things from him. I really had trouble accepting. And he called a couple years ago and he asked me if, uh, He's called one day. It was a Sunday morning, 6 o'clock in the morning. It was California time, and it was 7 in Colorado. And he said, how would you like to go to Ireland? And I said, sure. You know, and, and he said, no, I'm serious. And he's remarried. And him and my stepmother bicycle all over the world every year. And he said, uh, Jan broke her knee two days ago, and the doctor said, there's no way she can go. And he said, I would like you to go with me. And just... I mean, it was just unbelievable. You know, the first there was an instinct to say no because I didn't have the money. And, of course, I didn't need the money. He wanted he wanted to do this for me. And it was just so hard to turn into that child, to be able to say yes. And so I thought about it. Of course, it didn't take too long. <laughs> and I thought about it, and I said yes. And I had I had four weeks to get in shape. Um, I hadn't been bicycling at that time, so I really had to start working. And it was one of the best experiences of my life. And on top of it, it was a, a senior citizens group. And I was the only kid, you know. I was 36 years old, and I was and I was just a kid, and everybody loved me. And and uh, my father worked on my bike, and he said, "You go on, go rest now, and work on your bike." And um, it's just really great. I couldn't have done that. I couldn't have accepted to be to play a child role as an adult, you know, to be that, and for him to be able to give that to me, and for me to be able to accept it. So that's what, and that's what God has put into my life. That there's, there's things where I just, I have been so depleted over the years that all of a sudden now in my life when I'm working my program, when I'm doing what I'm supposed to do, these things are coming back into my life that are just gorgeous. You know, things are just happening every day. Just last week I was going to work and I, I just can't believe how incredibly happy I am. And my husband's not sober. So it doesn't matter. I mean, that's just it. It doesn't matter. And when I finally got to that point, that it just doesn't matter how, what my family's doing, how sick they are, and they're all, I mean, everyone is going through it right now really extreme. There's a lot of crises at home right this very minute as I speak. But it just does not infringe on my serenity. And it's Al-Anon that's given me that. It's nothing else. And I'm just so thankful that I was able to find this program. And I'm, and I'm thankful that I married an alcoholic because I wouldn't be here. And I was dysfunctional before I married, you know, before I met him and before I married him. And I think that's the reason I picked him, because he was just—he was a—I knew some, somehow intuitively that he was dysfunctional, and I was real comfortable with that. Because I—I look back at my early relationships of dating and and the people that were functional, I wasn't attracted to. I wasn't comfortable with them. And if they had functional families, you know, I, I just. I, I couldn't relate if someone had like an Aussie and Harriet family. I mean, I wanted that, but I, I couldn't relate with that. I was more, I like 
his father died a drunk on Skid Row, and uh, his mother raised him alone. They moved all over California, you know. And that, to me, was living. You know, I, I still wanted that. I still wanted that. You know, that's that really grind. I wanted that suffer. You know, I wanted. I wanted those brown eyes to look like they had carried the weight of the world. And I did. I just always just they were open and sad. You know, and and that's how I I that was the image I wanted to project, and that's the image that I did project. And it was just coming in to the Al-Anon program and being able to turn my will and my life over to the care of God as I understand Him, and that is what I do. And I and it it that I I have work on constantly is not to have self-will, and it's to be able to carry out whatever I feel like I am supposed to do, and only then am I happy. Whenever I, I do my own will or I think something should work out another way, I'm not happy and things do not go well. They just don't go well. And I'm starting to give up my henny-penny syndrome. I'm, I'm, I'm much better at it. When we first moved back to Colorado, of course, we had no jobs. We had a U-Haul truck just like the one that took us out, carried the same VW bus back, only the dog, one dog had died. The German Shepherd died of old age. The cat, one of the cats had died of old age, but we had another dog. But the same thing, we were just moving back. I mean, we same path, same road, you know, just the, only we were coming back five years later. And I was a little worried then, I'm not going to get a job. I'm not going to get back in my profession. They don't do in Colorado what they did in California. What am I going to do, you know? And I had to really work on that because I was being my mother again, you know, and, and I was being David again. He let them, They all worry enough. I don't need to worry anymore. And so I just... I really worked on giving up, I, and I don't want to pass that Henny Penny syndrome to my son. He's 12 now, and he's just a real free person. And I'm—I don't know. It's hard to tell until you know kids are older. But he—he's real positive. He's—he—he just—he—he he earns his own money. He just started a paper out. He's real. He's just real positive. You know, he's real self-assured. Self-assurance that I never had in my you know in myself as a kid. And I'm real real happy to see that. And I don't know if he's, you know, the poor kid, he's, you know, he's got a loaded gun. He's got the mental illness on one side and he's got the alcoholism on the other, you know, and I worry because I know this is all genetically linked. And, uh, but there's nothing I can do about that. You know, I hope that he'll know, you know, that there are programs out there to go through. And um, before I leave, it's about 11, I want to tell you just a henny-penny story that was back when I was in California and about how I was so afraid of everything and what I did to this phone caller. It was in the middle of the night when the phone rang. Whenever the phone rang when I was in California in the middle of the night, I knew somebody was dead or in jail or tortured. I don't know you know, what it was, but I hated phone calls in the middle of the night. And the phone started ringing and no one in the family moved. You know, They were asleep and I was the only one to hear the phone. And I figured, well, if it's a wrong number, they're going to give up. And I laid there and the phone rang and it rang and it rang and it rang. And I knew I had to get up out of bed because now I knew somebody was dead. Because they knew if they let that phone ring enough, eventually I'd get to the phone. So I, well, I just walked down the hall. It was a long ways. In the middle of the night, and it's a long ways to the phone, and it keeps ringing, and you're hoping that it stops, but afraid that it's not going to. And and finally I got to it, and I just stared at it and let it ring three more times while I stared at it. And I knew, you know, I was going to pick it up, and they were going to say, mm, your mother's dead, your brother's dead, you know, and... And I just, my heart had stopped. I quit breathing, and, and I, I just finally forced myself to pick up the phone. And I, I was trying to say prayers, you know, that I was going to be able to handle it, whatever was on that phone. And I picked it up to my ear, and this guy's breathing and saying strange things. And I said, <laughs> I said, oh, my God, thank God it's a pervert. And I hung up. 
I, 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 don't, I bet that guy doesn't make those phone calls anymore. <laughs> but it was just, you know, that was it. I was just always waiting for, you know, this guy to fall in. You know, and I was real, that shows your perspective. I was thankful it was a pervert. I was just, you know, and I'm, I'm sure, you know, that it, it, it made his day. Because I don't think he probably gets that many responses like that. But I just want you to know that Al-Anon has given me that. And it's given, this program has given me this. And the disease of alcoholism has given me this. If I had grown up with the perfect parents, if I had married the perfect person, I don't think I'd be the person I am today, and I wouldn't want to give that up because I really like who I am today. And a sponsor at one time when I didn't like who I was made me look in the mirror every day, and I didn't look at myself. You know, I got to where we don't look at ourselves anymore because we don't like what we see. And she made me look at myself, and she made me say that she made me say that I love you, Cynthia, to myself. And that was something that was extremely hard for me to do, but I did it because she told me I had to do it. And, and I did it. And through that and through all this stuff is that today I, I do I do love myself and I don't hate anybody else. That's even the more beautiful thing. And I think the reason I don't hate anybody else is because I love myself. I love myself for just that day. I don't care if I think I should lose 20 pounds. I don't care if I've been awake all night and I look like shit. I don't care. I love that person that's in that mirror every single day when I, when I, when I look in there. And it's, it's a total acceptance of myself. And that's what makes me have the serenity and the sanity that I have today. And I'm just, I can't tell you how grateful I am for this program and for all the groups and all the states. And thank God they're all here because it was you people that took me six years ago and, and started me back on the road to my serenity. And, and that's all I ever wanted. Even when I was six, I can, it was all there. It was all a bunch of names we put it, but it was serenity. That's all I ever wanted. And that's all I want today. I don't want a house. I don't want money. I don't want prestige. I don't want anything. I want serenity, and and I'm and I'm and I'm real determined that that comes first. And when I do, then I then I have it. So I I thank you all for being here. I enjoyed coming up. Thank you for listening, and please keep coming back. Whatever your problems, there are those among us who have had them too. If we did not talk about a problem you are facing today, feel free to contact us so we can talk about it in a future episode. My understanding, love, and peace growing you one day at a time. <laughs>